Hi. Is that on? Yeah. Is it low? Uh, Here we are. Are we good? That doesn't sound high at all. Hi. What? I don't know what I'm doing. Test one, two. Uh, Yeah, that's better. It should be the same as last night, but of course it's not because we talked about it. Uh, Anyway. um, Exactly. So there's my intro. I'm a buffoon, and uh, that, that's it. So let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. <laughs> the show must go on, as they say. And uh, let's uh, open up in prayer. Let's be grateful and thankful. Hold on for one second. For God's grace and mercy, it was a wonderful topic tonight on on the virgin birth and the prophecy of that. And uh, so to be grateful for our Lord and this wonderful and intricate plan that God has provided for us for, so that we would be saved and free. And so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for our Lord. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, who became the Son of Man as he always was the Son of Man, but in being born into this world as your gift to the human race, um, what we could not do, he did. What we couldn't possibly comprehend, he made available. What we couldn't know, he revealed. Everything is in him. We understand that, Father. We are so grateful to you for providing him. None of us deserve him or anything that comes through Him. May we be humbled by that truth so that we may live as Your children in Your world, longing for the next world. We ask, Father, that through through Your Spirit, that the things that we'll look at, uh, these eternal truths, would become more real to us. And we ask in Christ's name, Amen. So, uh, God has to show the world that they have a sin problem. And as we know with a lot of people that, and we ourselves are, we're in that same boat and uh, sometimes find ourselves still in it as believers, is that, you know, we think more highly of ourselves than what we should. Uh, It becomes an issue in the human race that um, is pride. And pride is a killer of life. Pride is a destroyer of happiness. Pride is, is the surest, the surest, fastest, straightest road to misery. And uh, all of us have to deal with it in ourselves, in our flesh. So how does God show the world that they have a sin problem? And how did he show it to you? Because you guys here tonight as believers, um, you know this. You know that you have a sin problem. I think, well, we're going to answer that question tonight, but how God shows that to you is in a real peculiar way. It's not in the way that we often think things like that are revealed. Um, So Christ is born into the world through a virgin. Uh, He's the one and only. It's an amazing thing. And uh, it's never going to happen again. It was for, for the one and only time that it happened. But it's a, it's a part, it's really a beginning of him revealing to us what we need to know. Uh, he is in the line of Abraham. He's in the line of David, as we see in Matthew 1. He is the, uh, the, in, from the house of David, the royal house. He's qualified as king. And yet, he's born of a virgin. That the Matthew's lineage goes right to Joseph, but Joseph isn't his real father. And so there's a disconnect there, but yet there's a connection to the house of David as it needs to be. And so our Lord is absolutely unique from the rest of us. Although so born in a human, he's not born in Adam. He's not actually, being a child of the Holy Spirit, he's not born like the rest of us in sin. So in Matthew 1.18, 
Afterward, after Matthew gives his genealogy, and we're going to continue to tie this together, chapters 1 through 4. It's all related to the same uh, thing that Matthew wants to reveal, which is the, the king, the qualifications of Christ as king. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, which means a sexual union, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. We saw yesterday that this betrothal is an engagement, and but yet it's legally binding in the Jewish culture, uh, really under the Jewish law. Although, you know, this isn't necessarily under the Mosaic law, but it is a part of their culture that if you are betrothed to someone, you are legally bound to them. And that's why it would be adultery if she had slept with another man. It would have been uh, fornication if she had come together with Joseph because that was not, uh, they had no legal right to uh, consummate the marriage in the betrothal. So before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Matthew, right at the beginning, just says this plainly. He doesn't keep anybody in suspense that he is born by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And we looked at that yesterday. What a righteous man he was. Um, by doing this, he even before he has the dream from the angel, if if she has committed adultery, to, he has every right under the Mosaic Law to publicly expose her and therefore save his own reputation, but he does not. He puts her away secretly or at least plans to because he's a righteous man. He doesn't want to hurt her. And she's going to be hurt anyway. But by doing this, he reveals his love, his compassion, which righteous people have. Um, he has a right under the law to hurt her. He won't do it. Um, and it's because he's righteous. We saw that. He has a courage. And uh, righteous people have courage to do the will of God no matter what the consequences are. And that we saw yesterday. It's an excellent lesson for all of us. Do what's right no matter what the consequences are. No matter what the reputation you get. Follow the Lord and you know, with, you'll be righteous. And this is the sure, sure path. As pride is a path to misery, righteousness is a path to peace and joy and fulfillment. So uh, when he had considered this, and that word considered means he thought on it. He thought on it quite a bit, we would think. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. I skipped over this, but we saw it in the genealogy, right? Joseph is a son of David, but this, you know, the angel is reaffirming this. And Matthew is making sure that he reaffirms this to his readers, that Joseph is the son of David, uh, and he, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And that in itself right there, he will save his people from their sins. Now, put yourself in Joseph's position here. Like, what does that mean to him? How does that work? We, now, we know the cross. We know his death and resurrection. We have all the Bible. This is, we're very familiar with this. But for Joseph, this is a, what in the world are you talking about? How does he save his people from their sins? Do you think in Joseph's mind that he just jumps over, oh, yeah, he's probably going to die on a cross? He has no clue. But yet it's stated so magnificently. Because, right, what is the problem with Israel, with mankind, Jew, Gentile, all of us, sins. Our sins. And he's going to deliver his people. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is what we'll look at today. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Now, he takes her as his wife. Again, I'm, I'm plugging Joseph a little bit here before we get on to our main subject for today because this righteous man is going to take Mary as his wife. I mean, the angel says don't be afraid to do it. 
it's, he's not commanded, right? You don't, the angel isn't saying God demands that you take her as your wife. He still has the choice, and he makes the choice of a righteous man because taking this girl on as his wife is going to still be in that society uh, a, a real black mark on all of their reputations, on his reputation and Mary's and the son, who is Jesus. That everybody knows that she was pregnant before they were actually married. And so, but he's going to take this on anyway, take on this family that others are going to mock and ridicule. But he does the right thing because the angel, right, through God tells him to. So he does the will of God, even though it's going to cause him big problems in life. But if he doesn't do this, we probably don't know anything about him. The reward to Joseph to do this, to raise, imagine being the father. Even though he's not your real son, you get to raise the Messiah. I mean, what a privilege. His whole life is turned upside down by this, of course. But at least you had a perfect kid, right? You're raising a perfect kid. That had to be something. I'm sure the rest of his brothers and sisters were just hell on two legs. But anyway, Uh, so... The prophecy. Matthew is at the start revealing here, again, he's revealing Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah and King of Israel. He's writing to Jews about 30 years roughly after the death and resurrection of Christ. And he's convincing or trying to convince Israel to believe in Christ as the Savior. I should say believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. That's their word for Messiah, or the Greek word for Messiah. Uh, The angel encourages Joseph with the truth of the matter, and he finds his courage. Why? Because, well, he's a righteous man, but there's there's a reason why he's righteous, is that his faith is in the truth. And when the angel reveals to him the truth, he puts his faith in the fact that Mary is impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Then he finds his courage. If this is God's plan and God's will, this is how we find our courage. We see from the scripture, this is the plan of God, this is the will of God, whatever it may be. We find the courage to do it. doesn't matter what people say. I mean, what can go, you know, how can it go wrong for us? It cannot. When you're following God's will, it is the safest place to be. Now, he says he will save the people from their sins. The angel says to Joseph, Uh, Go to Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to stay in Isaiah quite a bit today, tonight. Um, And and actually see in Isaiah some amazing things. Um, That Israel has a real sin problem. And we see this right at the start of Isaiah's book. Uh, Excuse me. Matthew's going to show to his readers that Jesus is the promised one from Isaiah. And Isaiah's writing starts off really different from the other prophets. Um, if, you read, if you read the opening of, say, Ezekiel and Hosea and Micah, uh, Jeremiah, they all start their, the books all start with their calling. So right at the front, if you're reading Jeremiah, you see right in the first few verses that Jeremiah was called from a certain place to be a prophet. It says the same thing about Hosea. says the same thing about Micah. I was called to be a prophet by God. You don't see that here in Isaiah. At the front of Isaiah, you see the sin problem. So look at 1.4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evil doers. Sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. This is the opening of his book. And what an odd opening. But then, as we read on, actually chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, all dealing with this problem in Israel, this their rebellion, their sin, their... See here, corruption, evil doing, iniquity. And it's not just a few of them. There's always a few bad apples in the bunch, right? But this is, he says, you're a sinful nation. They all are. 
And they're rebelling and have been rebelling against God, idol worshiping and so on. In chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, they're already suffering incredible discipline by God. And in fact, it's very likely that the front of this book is really what happens later on, you know, uh, long into uh, Isaiah's career as a prophet. As, as he warns and warns and warns and uh, exalt, uh, you know, uh, exhorts them, it, they don't change. And they actually get worse. And it's at the, you know, here, they're, they're in a bad place, Israel is. And then, as we read on, we get to chapter 6, and then we see it's in chapter 6 that the commission or the calling of Isaiah is there. And I want you to, this is not just a, you know, uh, hey, this is kind of different idea. This is put here for a reason. Um, the arrangement of any book in the Bible is divinely inspired. So there's a reason why for Isaiah, particularly, that his calling as a prophet is not at the front of the book. We have to keep reading all the way to chapter 6. There's quite a bit of this you know, terrible things that, I, uh, that Israel is doing. And then we get to here. And in chapter 6, he's called, as he's called, he's admits that he's an unrighteous man, that he's not worthy to do this. And if you know, if you know the scene, that an angel comes from the, the throne of God with a coal. In, he's got tongs. He picks a coal up from the throne, touches the lips of Isaiah and tells him, your sins you are clean. And then he's, he's ready to go. God says, who will go for us? Isaiah says, here, right over here. Call me because I've been cleansed. And then God tells him, this is your ministry now. This is what you're going to tell Israel. Look at verse 9. Imagine that, you, you know, this is before you start your ministry, God hands you a script and says, this is what you're going to say. Okay, this is what your ministry is going to be about. And just as you're about to open that envelope, say, you're like excited, like, what does God want me to say? This is going to be right. My ministry This is going to be great. Verse nine. Here's what he's going to say. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. What? That's what you want me to do? Yeah. I want you to take a blind people and make them more blind. I want you to take a deaf people and make them more deaf. They're, you know what this really means? Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. Your ministry is one of doom. And they're doomed because you're actually going to render their hearts insensitive. So you mean you're going to send me to Israel with your gospel and they're what? They're going to get more insensitive, more deaf, more blind. And that's exactly right. Quite the commission. But now, as I said, the arrangement of the books uh, in the Bible, every one of them are arranged by God, the Holy Spirit. So there's an arrangement here that is important to you know, you see the, um, you know, how things are tied together. Now, you have to be careful because you can start looking for arrangements that aren't there. Right? So don't look, don't look for stuff that ain't there. But here you have the, all of this. Chapters 1 through 5, Israel is terrible, revol- uh, rebelling. They are revolting, but rebelling against God. Uh, and, and then Isaiah is called, and then... In chapter 7, right after this commission, in chapter 6, Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz. And it's here that we find this prophecy of the virgin birth. Right after his commission, and what was he told? Don't forget this. You're going to render the the hearts of the people insensitive. The blind are going to be blinder. Jesus quotes this very passage word for word 
in, in the Gospels. He says, look, Israel, I, Jesus says the same thing. You're, you have eyes to see, but you don't see. You have ears to hear, but you don't hear. So he goes to King Ahaz. And this is where our prophecy is. But our prophecy, like all prophecies, is not in a vacuum. There's stuff going on, events that are going on, that actually this prophecy fits into. So to understand it to the depth that we should, we have to understand the things that are going on. And a war is going on. Look at 7-1, Isaiah 7-1. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. All right, so this, and in, this Ahaz is in Matthew's genealogy. He is from the tribe of Judah. He is the king of Judah. That Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Actually, you always see this in the scripture that they go up when in fact they're going down. It always drives me a little bit nuts, but that's the way it's always worded. They're going heading south, uh, but it says they could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David saying the Arameans... Those are the guys from Aram, as you just see in verse 1. The Aramians have it camped at Ephraim, and that Ephraim is in Israel. That's like their capital. Uh, his, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees and the forest, as of the forest shake with the wind. So Ahaz and the people are scared a lot. They're very frightened by the fact that these two guys are coming at them. Now, uh, we've got to understand a little bit of the geography here, and it helps us out quite a bit. So, on the board, I got a map. Love my maps. Oh, that's funny, because we're in maps as a building. Anyway, so uh, in green is the kingdom of Israel. And in this beige color or brown is the kingdom of Judah. Why is the north part called Israel? And it's because the kingdoms had split. Uh, the, under David, the real first king of Judah, we had a unified Israel. So this all would have been one color. But after uh, David's son Solomon started this rift between north and south, and then Solomon's son, David's grandson, Rehoboam, actually did it. And a civil war happened, and so they fought with each other. And a big civil war. And so you have ten tribes in the north. That's, they called Israel. It's confusing to us. We say, why are they calling themselves Israel? That's what they did. And the southern kingdom, which is uh, um, Benjamin and Judah, took on the name Judah. And that's where Jerusalem is. And these guys have been at odds with each other for 300 years, 200 years. And they will never unite again. So um, what happens here is you have the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire, and they're out uh, east, they're of the conquering type. Right? They just they want to go places and conquer and make money and get slaves. And here they come. They're coming. And they're coming this way. And everybody knows it. So there's a kingdom here. Right? That's Aram, where Damascus is. Now, right now, these guys are shooting rockets. They're not the same people, but they're shooting rockets into Israel. This is where Jordan and the, to the north of Israel... Uh, Damascus is the, one of the oldest cities in the world. And Aram, which is also Syria. You can call them Syria. It's the same place. They're afraid of the Assyrians, and the kingdom of Israel is afraid of the Assyrians. So these two guys get together. And they say, why don't we make a deal? You help me, I'll help you. And we'll stand, hopefully we're strong enough to fight off the Assyrians. But you know what? South of us is this kingdom of Judah, and they don't like us. So if Assyria comes to attack, and let's say, for instance, Judah attacks, 
And I'm making, uh, let's get rid of the Say Judah attacks at the same time Assyria attacks. Well, we're going to be in trouble. So here's the thing to do. Why don't we, this group, conquer Judah and we'll put our own king there. And then we'll have three nations. All of us will be three kingdoms all together. And when the Assyrians come, we'll be strong enough to hold them off. That's the plan. And so they're coming. They're coming. These two, Aram, who is Syria, and Israel, are ready to attack. They've already camped. They're ready to come. They're coming. And Ahaz and all the people of Judah know they're coming. And they are scared. As Isaiah says, they shook like the trees in a heavy wind. And uh, so, that's the setup. Does it matter? It actually matters greatly. Um, so, there's a problem. There's many problems here. And first and foremost, uh, this kingdom of Israel, they're still God's people. That's the ten tribes up there in green. That's God's people. And instead of trusting God, they made a deal with Syria, who are not God's people. They said, hey, instead of saying, you know what, we're worshippers of Jehovah Elohim, it doesn't matter. The Assyrians can come. I mean, the kingdom of Satan can come. It doesn't matter, right? We've got God. But instead of doing that, they made a deal with the king of Syria. Hey, Syria, can you help us out? Uh, look, and this is a great lesson because all of us do this. We rely on our money. We rely on our problem-solving skills. We rely on whatever rather than trusting God. Right? This is a lesson, and you have to, I have to trust God for everything. And in the south, this is where uh, Isaiah goes now. Here in Jerusalem is King Ahaz, and turns out, that Ahaz secretly has made a deal with the Assyrian Empire himself. He actually paid them a lot of money and said, could you please not invade us? When you come to invade the other guys, can you not invade us? I'll pay you off with tons of money. And the Assyrians said, okay, we have a deal. So Ahaz also did not trust God for protection. He had a secret behind the scenes, behind back door, back room meeting with the Assyrians and paid them off. So he's trusting in that. So all kinds of wheeling and dealing. I mean, it truly is like uh, uh, Game of Thrones here, right? So um, now God sends Isaiah to Ahaz in the southern kingdom. And notice what he says. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. There's a reason why Ahaz is at the pool. Because when the Assyrians come, if they come, he's got to make sure he ensures his water supply for the city. That's the one main thing you've got to do. It's more important than, than food is to make sure you get water. Because they're going to barricade themselves in the city, right? So he's checking the water supply. And verse 4 now, besides all that, say to him, take care, be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. So like these, these little tiny, as God describes them, little tiny stubs of smoldering firebrands are Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria. Or a ram. <clears throat> so don't fear them. Again, verse four. On account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son and the son of Ramalia, which is uh, uh, the northern kingdom, it says because Aram with Ephraim. Again, it, that's another name for the northern kingdom is Ephraim. And the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. They're going to set up this guy as their king in the south. Thus says the Lord God. 
Thus says the Lord God in verse 7, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, and this does come true, so that it is no longer a people. And guess who does that? That's the Assyrians who will invade the northern kingdom and destroy it. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. So the, Isaiah is saying, look, God says that these guys, when they invade, it's not going to work. And you're, I'm going to protect you. God knows that uh, Ahaz already made a deal with Assyria. God knows that he already paid them off. But God's going to protect him anyway. He says, sends the prophet and says, look, no matter what happens here, these guys are not going to invade you. So don't fear. It's not going to work. And he says, if you don't believe this, you're not going to last yourself. He tells him this wonderful prophecy that the northern kingdom is going to be destroyed in 65 years. And if you don't believe me, you Ahaz, king of the southern kingdom, you're going to be destroyed too. And, all right. So, what is, how does he respond to Isaiah? I mean, he really should be relieved. We just read how scared he is. This is the prophet of God comes to you and says, point blank, God says that none of this is going to work. Don't be afraid. But Ahaz is a worshiper of Baal. We read in Kings. We know all about him. If we read in Kings, we see that he's made molten images to Baal. He has served Malek. Malek is the Ammonite god. And we find out that he sacrificed one of his children to Malek. The Ammonite god Malek, or Malek, demands child sacrifice. Ahaz sacrificed one of his children to a false god. He is not a worshiper of Jehovah Elohim, yet... God sends the prophet to him. He uh, admired an altar uh, in Syria so much that he had it made identical and put it in the house of the Lord. Ahaz put a, uh, an altar made to a false god in the temple and offered sacrifices on it. Ahaz shut uh, up the holy place of the temple. He shut the doors and as we saw, he asked Assyria for help and paid them off. So, now then, this offer, this don't be afraid Ahaz, and then now look at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as shield or as high as heaven. And Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. What a jerk. I will, look, Isaiah says, God says, I will give you any sign. Can you imagine this? Just, you don't think, if if you don't believe that God's going to protect you from these people from the north, ask me for anything, I'll do it. As high as the heavens and as low as shield, which is just a way of saying anything you want, I'll do it. You know, darken the sun. What else has God done? Split the ground open. Split the Red Sea, whatever. I'll do it. Ask me for anything you want. And notice his response. It almost like he's faking he's humble. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to test the Lord. The Lord just asked you to ask him for a sign. And Ahaz is feigning here. He's not true. He fakes, Ahaz fakes humility. He doesn't want a sign from the Lord because he hates the Lord. He worships Baal, he worships Malak, he worships the false gods. He loves the false gods. He hates Jehovah Elohim. So he doesn't want one and he fakes, he just has this fake thing. So if we remember what God said to Isaiah in chapter 6 about what his ministry would be. To the people of Israel, keep on listening but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. This is my ministry. And we see it come to fruition. 
when this commission is given to Isaiah in chapter 6, and right away in chapter 7, we have him going to the king of Judah and saying, look, I've got great news for you. You're, you're protected. God's protecting you. You have nothing to fear. And I have even greater news for you. God has offered you any sign in the world that you want. What, what do you want? So you can really have faith and trust him. Because that's what it would be, right? If I, did, if I said, oh, man, that's awesome. God will give me a sign. Why would you want one? Why would any of us want a sign if God promised it? It is because we would really want to trust him. You know, if you are having a hard time with a certain situation and faith in that situation, and God came to you and said, look, I'll do any sign that you want to increase your faith, of course you would ask for it because that's what you want. You want to trust him. But Ahaz doesn't. He doesn't want to trust him at all. And he, therefore, he doesn't want a sign. He doesn't want to trust. Now, um, this shows us that the way in which God makes people blind and deaf is to offer them salvation. This is the craziest thing. This is new learning for me. This this concept, this principle is just brilliant. Um, it's truth from the Word of God. It, this is not just here either. It's a principle that Paul writes about in the New Testament, that the power of the gospel is part of its power is that people can say no to it. God doesn't force anyone to believe. God doesn't force anyone into salvation. God presents the gospel. But what is in the gospel is the work of God and God alone, right? What's in the gospel? In the gospel is the work of Christ, and he completes salvation. He says it is finished, and you contribute nothing other than you believe. In other words, you hold out your hand and receive the gift. But you don't work for it. You don't earn it. It is given freely. Who does the work? God does. He even does the work to bring the message to you. Ahaz doesn't ask for Isaiah to come to him. Isaiah comes to him. God sends him. God sent you the gospel. God sends the call. We don't do anything. This backs up this whole thing that we learned in the the, um, the genealogy of Christ. I almost said the geology of Christ. In the genealogy of Christ, we find that none of us are worth anything. None of us have anything really, and not really, none of us have anything valuable in us. Everything that we have is good and valuable comes from God. And therefore, in the gospel... The gospel is the work of God for your salvation. You can take no part in it. None. And hence, if I want to be saved, if I'm going to actually see that I have a sin problem, then I've actually got to accept the fact that God will save me and deliver me. And I can take no credit for that. I just have to say yes. That's all Ahaz has to do. Is just say, wow, thanks, Isaiah. You know, I've been worshiping the wrong, stupid gods all this time. None of them have ever made an offer to me like this. When has Baal protected anybody? When has Baal even instructed anybody? He can't talk. When has he done anything good for anyone? Never, not once. Yet, they continue to worship him. The same thing happens today, except it's not Baal anymore. It's just another name. The way, now if you think about this, the offer of deliverance is an offer from God to do everything to deliver you. And if you're not willing for that, then all it does is push you away more. And so it fulfills, this is how Isaiah fulfills his ministry in being blind, you will be blinder. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Because the message is not going to be what you want to hear. 
What do people want to hear? Do they want help from God? In a way that they do, but not like without their own contribution to it. Right? People want to work for their salvation. If God's message of salvation was a works program, then people would. More would respond to it. At least more people would. But this is, you know, the gospel is a flat out, you can do nothing. No, I don't want your work. No, I don't want your effort. No, I don't want your skills. No, I don't want your brains. I don't want anything. You know, what you what this shows is that Christ alone is the one who suffers for you. So the offer of deliverance involves only God's actions. It is a gift in which God does the work, only one who does the work, and only God pays the price, and he pays the whole price. It is not you at all. Oh, and it's absolute freedom, this, because it's not just, well, I say it's just in the gospel, but the gospel doesn't just apply to the moment of our salvation. It's not, some people have thought that, you know, that I believe the gospel is like whatever, John 3.16 or John 5.24, 1 Corinthians 16.11 or wherever you put your gospel, 1 Corinthians 15.1-3 is a great one, and you know, I believed already, so I set the gospel aside, and I'm off on to more complex things. But the gospel is as simple and complex as everything in the Scripture because in the gospel, the good news through Christ, in which he shows you how to do everything. not all, To be saved, yeah, he shows you how you can be saved, and he also shows you how to live. And it's all in that same principle of when I'm looking to do that which I need to do, I'm looking to him. If I'm going to teach, I'm looking to, how does he show me how to teach? If I'm looking to be a husband or a wife or a friend, I'm looking, how does he do that? He saves me, he delivers me, but even in that, he showed me how. Through his love, his love was sacrifice on the cross. I'm shown by him how to do everything. I have nothing in myself of which I can remotely know anything about those things. When I think I can know about those things, that's when I mess them all up. All I do is create pain in other people's lives, not goodness, and certainly pain in my own life. So, as I said, Ahaz has already made a deal with Assyria for a large sum of money. And it's not even his money. He's spending God's money on and giving it to uh, Tiglath, Tiglath Pileser, or however you pronounce his name, um, is the current king of Assyria. He gave him a bunch of money as he hates the Lord. And therefore, Ahaz relies on himself. I don't need a sign from God. I've already got this figured out. You know, I already made a deal. That kind of thing. So Isaiah gets kind of angry at this. Of course, you would too. And he says in verse 13, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? I mean, you can kind of feel the anger in that statement. Is it too, you know, are you going to try my pay? I came all the way down here to offer you a sign and to tell you this, and you're going to tell me, no, no, I don't want a sign. I don't want to test the Lord. Are you kidding me? And you're going to test me, and you're going to test the Lord? And then he says in verse 14, which is really, you know what? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Here's the sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And there it is. So uh, all of this buildup, all of this learning that we've just done in the geography and the war that was currently happening, you can see how this all, this is where this prophecy comes from. This prophecy, or like any prophecy, is not in a vacuum. It's not just stated on, on paper to, you know, for it to be fulfilled. You know, I understand that it is that, but it's, also, in the context of this king. Now, he's not going to go away. 
because on Sunday, we're bringing him back and we're going to see how he in the book of Isaiah leads us to another situation, which is just like, well, it's, it's, a, it's a revelation of, when it really not a revelation. It's what we call a sequential uh, prophecy. Uh, I think it's sequential. Where did I put it? I'm getting that word wrong. It doesn't matter what it's called. Uh, what this is is a prophecy that it, yeah, it's sequential. A sequential prophecy is here it is at the front. And, you know, this could mean anything, I, really, because he's saying it to Ahaz. Ahaz, a woman's going to be with child. So we say, well, wait a minute, it's a virgin. Actually, no, it's not. I mean, it could be. It implies it somewhat. We know it is because we have the rest of the scripture. But the Hebrew word here is Alma, and Alma means a young maiden. Now, a young maiden, generally, in Israel, you're going to say 99.9% of the time is a virgin because of their culture. In Western culture, in our society, all bets are off on that. Right, we're talking about a 17-year-old, 16-year-old. Is it guaranteed here in America that she's a virgin? No. But in their culture, it's pretty much true. But this isn't a word that means virgin. And we have to acknowledge that because some use that to say, oh, no, no, this prophecy is not real. It didn't happen this way. This is just a young woman. And they're absolutely right. This is just a young woman. But this is the beginning of something that's going to grow into the New Testament. And actually, it's going to grow a bit more right in the book of Isaiah. And so, what we call a sequential prophecy. It's really exciting, actually. This, um, the fact that this isn't technically 100% slam dunk that Alma means virgin. Right? It's actually exciting for us because there's more to be yet revealed. This prophecy to Ahaz would mean nothing. A young woman's going to be with child. So what? What's the big deal? Except that. His name. What is he going to be called? Emmanuel. Now, Matthew translates this for us. But Emmanuel, which is not a common word in the Bible, it's used here, it's used again in Isaiah, and it's used by Matthew. That's it. That Emmanuel means God with us. So this child, it means God with us. Well, who is that? Now, some have postulated that, well, this is Isaiah's kid. You know, that's what it means. Isaiah's wife's going to have a child. Uh, it can't be, unless Isaiah gets married again. Because if you go back to verse 3, this is probably the reason why God points this out to us, or Isaiah does. Now go, he says, go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, or however you pronounce his name. He brought his son with him. <laughs> you know, so Isaiah's wife is not a virgin. She, he's, this, this can't happen. Nor is she a maiden. She's no longer a maiden, a young maiden. So, no, it's not Isaiah's wife. Something is afoot. Oh, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, the so as you know, as Matthew, at least just having Matthew's passage, we know that this is actually the reference to. If there was any woman that was referenced here in the time of Ahaz who had a child, it wouldn't be a virgin birth, right? But you know, uh, was there somebody in the time of Ahaz who was a young maiden who had a child that fulfills this? We have no idea of that, and neither is it is it said anywhere. We would probably conclude no. But we know that this is a prophecy of Christ thanks to Matthew. Well, really, th- thanks to the angel who speaks to Joseph. You know, reading it here, if we didn't have the New Testament to tell us what it meant, we would not conclude that. I mean, you wouldn't. None of us would. So, again, this is a prophecy that, you know, hold on, more is to come. 
which is really wonderful because it also tells us keep learning. There's more to come. Don't think you know all things because then you're shutting yourself off to some wonderful things. Uh, just like Isaiah said, this league of these two nations, go back to my map, this, uh, these two knuckleheads here are not going to be successful in invading Judah. And not only are they not going to be successful, but when Assyria comes in, he's going to destroy them, and they're going to destroy them. And they're gone. Uh, that, king, that green, they never come back. They don't come back. That becomes a mixture of, of Jews and Gentiles. So, uh, yeah. So they're unsuccessful, just as Isaiah said. Um, and so we have this, getting back to Isaiah's um, commission. The commission is, all right, Isaiah, I'm going to send you to Israel. You're going to teach them my word, and guess what? They're blind people, and they're going to get blinder. They're deaf, and they're going to get more deaf. Deafer? That's not a word. And so basically, your ministry is going to be a flat-out failure if you're going to measure it by their response to you. But your ministry is going to also be an enormous success for all time. But Israel is not going to respond. Um, so, get back to chapter 1. Because obviously, chapter 6, where Isaiah is called... Has to, uh, chronologically has to come before chapter 1. His, his ministry, in, in chapter 1, his ministry has already started. Uh, the book opens up with the fact that Israel is rebellious and wicked. And God, is, if we continued to read through chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, we would see that God had severely disciplined them. And the northern kingdom, the map, they're going to be... In, incredibly disciplined by God allowing the Syrian, the Assyrians, not Syrians, Assyrians to come in. And, and yet, do they change? Hundreds of years, generation after generation of discipline, of invasions, of loss. And they keep worshiping idols. It's the same with the Exodus generation, right? We're pretty familiar with them. We studied them a few times. And God disciplines after they've seen all the miracles and the splitting of the Red Sea and all of this, but they still rebel. And what does God call them? Stiff-necked. You're rebellious and stiff-necked. But it's not just Jews, right? It's everybody. And... God puts them through pain. God has set it up this way. All of us have experienced this. You made some stupid decisions and you suffered for it. You made some terrible decisions and you suffered for it. Does it change the heart? No. It doesn't. And for some people, when the pain gets bad enough, their hearts, they'll stop doing the things that are causing the pain. Uh, somewhat, but what we're talking about here is not people stopping bad habits because, you know, they're hurting themselves too much. We're talking about the true cure, the true cure of the addiction to bad decisions. Now, we don't become sinless if we know this, but there's a cure, and the cure is I'm guilty. That's my left, my right hand. I'm guilty. I am completely guilty of that. It's not their fault, her fault, his fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's not my DNA. It's not my ra- how I was raised. I'm guilty. And there's one way to see that. Now, we're talking here about true guilt. That you are a sinner and you have a sin problem. And that comes not from pain. Pain can lead you there, but it doesn't. What comes is you seeing your pain in another. This is how God is revealed to the human race, that we have a sin problem. Your pain is seen in another. 
and not just any other. Think about it. When, when people actually uh, have their bad habits or bad ways or bad decisions and you ever try to convince somebody who you can obviously see is doing bad things and it's hurting them and you say, well, can you not see that this is bad? And do they all go, thanks, you know, thanks for that. I'm going to change right away. It doesn't happen. But when sometimes in people, when they see their bad decisions hurt others, let's say you see it, you see it hurt your kids or you hurt your spouse or someone you love. You say, whoa, right? That's an eye opener. Still, it's not a cure. Where the cure comes is when you see Christ suffering for your dumb decisions. That's what he did, didn't he? He suffered on the cross because of our sins. That's that's the suffering that your decisions caused. And when you see that, then you see that I'm guilty. And this is the gospel, right? Is it not? The gospel doesn't actually just go around trying to convince people that they're sinners. It does do that. But it does it in the framework of Christ dying for the sins of the world. You run around telling people you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, clean yourself up, you're a sinner, stop doing that, you're a sinner, stop doing that. And all the people just look at you and say, get, get lost, you self-righteous prig. It's not going to do anything to anybody. But when you reveal that Christ died for your sins or for their sins, then you see on the innocent man, the very innocent, perfectly innocent man, the Son of God, he bore your sins. This is also in Isaiah, chapter 53. He himself bore our iniquities. And it's then that we see a change in language in the book of Isaiah where there's an us. There's an us spoken of that says he has died for our sins. There's a recognition there in chapter 53 that this this one who is innocent, who bore our sins, is actually the one who has shown that we're guilty. So, all of this we see... In Isaiah. Um, so for us, you know, we have to see Christ uh, as our Savior in everything. Uh, everything that we do wrong, He is the way of right. Everything that we think and do and say, I mean, we're saved, our sins are forgiven, but we're still called to be sanctified and righteous. We're still, call- we are called to live. A life that is filled with good decisions. A life that is filled with the wisdom of God that is able to make good decisions. And if we can see in him the salvation of our soul. But we've seen that. The salvation of our souls from sin. We've been delivered from sin. But also the salvation from being a bad fill in the blank. A bad husband, a bad wife, a bad friend, a bad pastor, uh, whatever. In him is the salvation or deliverance from the bad unto the good. And I see in him the example. And also I see in him the one who suffered for all of my bad decisions. He's my savior in everything. And hence, I look to him. Again, not just as an example, though he is, but as the reality of my salvation, my Savior, saved from stupidity, saved from lust, saved from wanting the wrong stuff, saved from everything. He is the one. So uh, now next time on Sunday, we're going to pick up from Ahaz and go to another king who's in Isaiah. And you'll see how they're connected. And this is going to lead us further into this wonderful prophecy of the woman will be with child.
Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for our Lord and for the many things that you speak of him and prophetically and also to show us, Father. We're so privileged to be in the age where we have the whole Bible and therefore we can see it fulfilled in the New Testament. So we can see it from all angles and therefore we should understand all of it. We should understand all the depths of what you have revealed through Christ our Lord in your word. We ask, Father, that be true. In his name we pray. Amen. 